You're listening to Ecomonics, a Debutify podcast, your resource for one-of-a-kind insights into the world of e-commerce and business in the modern age. This is Joseph. I'll be presenting a wealth of industry knowledge from interviews with successful business people and our own state-of-the-art research. Your time is valuable, so let's go. Good to have you here, my friends. Welcome back to Ecomonics, a Debutify podcast, the most comprehensive e-commerce podcast that's also perpetually at war with autocorrect. If you've been listening to these in order as I've been making them, surely by now you've realized the surface has been scratched. But we have yet to delve deeper into the depths where light is but a trickle above. Today, I'll be sharing with you 20 more definitions pertaining to e-commerce. And don't worry, plenty more where this came from. At this point in the journey of our show, we've talked to a number of great guests, well over 20, and many a term has been brought up in those as well. So if you've been consistently listening to each and every episode, you may have heard a few or all of these already. The way it works is as I write scripts and conduct interviews, I'll take down notes of terms to add to this. Basically, this script has been written from the moment I finished the last one a few months ago. So ground rule, the glossary is a self-contained series. The only reason why a term isn't mentioned here is because it's been brought up in another issue, another glossary issue. And also, generally speaking, if I do an entire episode about a definition, it's probably not going to be brought up here. Probably. Ready? Let's do some learning. First on the list is content management system. According to optimizely.com, it's an application used to manage web content. Some examples they provide include WordPress, ModX, and Joomla. In trying to decide which one to use, some factors to consider are budget, what business functions you actually need settled, like how much content needs to be published or if you need to change SKUs en masse. If you need to link it with customer relationship management, CRM software, or ERP, enterprise resource planning software. Also factoring in how easy it is to create content, since the people writing on the blog may be savvy, but not tech savvy. How many user groups as well as ranks there will be? If you have anyone from a junior copywriter to the CEO posting on it. If the platform is SEO friendly, for the most part, that's a necessity, but some might need it more than others. And lastly, how big is the developer community? A popular program that's not quite what you intended may win out if there's enough people lending their time and talent to the community. So, since I brought them up, CRM, Customer Relationship Management Software, includes programs like HubSpot, Zoho, and Oracle. Its job is to help manage customer data, support sales management, keep track of insights based on customer behavior, and give the staff ways to communicate internally, but also outwardly by way of official channels and social media. Then ERP, Enterprise Resource Management. Okay, defining this one is a bit daunting, but NetSuite.com took a crack at it. They ask you to consider all the different processes involved in running a business. Inventory, order management, accounting, human resources, CRM, etc. ERP software ties all these factors and factories together. Some of these mentioned from computerweekly.com are NetERP from NetSuite, Sage, and Microsoft Dynamics. Now, let's talk about Dynamic Creative, a Facebook feature. Dynamic Creative allows you to provide a set of assets, including text, images, and video to Facebook, and then it'll mix and match these assets when presenting to the audience. The idea is, different people may want your product, but each person responds differently to creatives. So rather than manually testing each unique attempt, which could number in the hundreds, if not the thousands, Dynamic Creative will serve the ads based on the customer data. Now we got year over year. It's, it sounds pretty obvious, but whatever. It's where you measure results from one point of the year, say April, and then those same variables in preceding or succeeding years. 
Kind of a short one, so we'll make it a bonus. Now we have pay-per-click. According to the intentionally sparingly used Wikipedia, an internet advertising model used to drive traffic to websites, where an advertiser pays a publisher, which is usually a search engine, when the ad is clicked. Also a short one, but come on, I'm not made of bonuses here. Next up is unique value proposition. According to CXL.com, this is the selling point of your good or service to help customers decide on yours over your competitors. The three main factors to a strong UVP are relevancy, how effective it will be on your customers' lives, quantified value, the specific benefits, and differentiation, the parts that separate you from your competitors. It should come up pretty early on, like right when customers visit your site. So here's an interesting one, not to denigrate any of the other ones here, but anyways, progressive web apps are, according to developer.mozilla.org, web apps that use emerging web browser APIs, which are application performance interfaces. While we're on the subject, API, according to howtogeek.com, is, in their words, like a menu in a restaurant. But they found a more accurate and specific analogy is being able to bring your ingredients to the restaurant and get the kitchen to cook with them. There are some examples here. One I found helped me understand an API clearly is if you're making an app that needs to take photos or video. The iPhone has a built-in camera app, so you just use that. Now, back to PWAs. Another definition by medium.com says a PWA is a website that has the look and feel of an app. So all the features with none of the installation. Some real-world examples you can look at include the AliExpress web app, Flipkart, an Indian e-commerce site, Twitter Lite, which gets people on Twitter if they don't want the app, Pinterest has one, and Pure Formulas, a U.S. supplement site, just to mix it up, I guess. Next, we have VAN, Value Added Network. According to corporatefinanceinstitute.com, it's a closed network, the data contained within accessible only to members. Generally, a VAN will be responsible for your EDI, your electronic data interchange. Some examples include telecommunication companies, industry groups, and specialized service providers. There's three kinds, one-to-one, which are two businesses directly engaging data, exchanging data one to another. Then there's one-to-many, say a retail business connected to many suppliers. And then many-to-many, popular in the financial sector because many companies are intertwined. They bring more automation to the process and cut down on human error as a result. The exchange speed of data is now in real time. It's more secured and standardized. The downsides, however, are building costs since you need to hire developers to build and maintain your VAN. All right, let's do SaaS, Software as a Service. According to softwareadvice.com, it's also known as cloud-based software. At this point, whether you're a one-person operation or an enterprise, you're likely using something that counts. Now, as I go through this definition, what I was trying to understand is if something like Adobe Creative Suite of products counts, since those are installed on a computer, but accessible via the cloud. To me, they seem to be SaaS because the other kind is on-premise, which are paid for upfront with a license. There are some Adobe products you can pay for upfront, but they tend to aim for a casual market. The first main point about SaaS is you can hire people capable of using the software, wherever that may be, and all they need is the password and a computer, but they couldn't have applied for the job without the computer, so that's a given. Unless some people are very creative, but whatever. On-premise software can be a massive cost upfront, but a subscription model, while also potentially expensive, it lets you spread the budget out over months, giving you the maximum value upfront since you'd have full access to the software right away. Oftentimes, this leads to smaller companies being able to punch above their weight class and afford more pristine software to give them an edge. Because the development is in the hands of a dedicated backend team, I mean the services backend, 
they can continue to work on the service as well as offer you flexibility. All right, now we get OTO, one-time offer. The more I look into this, the more commonplace it becomes. In essence, it's a sale. But the distinction is for one reason or another, it comes to an end, forever. Unlike when once a month, unsalted butter goes on sale at the supermarket, you know who you are. So a one-time offer could be something as simple and as innocent as a toy collection at McDonald's that ties into a movie release. This was an article from Medium.com, written by Convert, that's C-O-N-V-R-R-T. It's written in 2016, an age ago, but most of it holds up. The first sticking point of a one-time offer is urgency. Terms like, while supplies last, appeal to each of our understanding that resources are limited in all things. This is not very convincing with digital products, but the answer to that is to offer a large amount so the customer recognizes that it is still a business and there can only be so many offers. So imagine offering 500 of a discounted subscription. Number 501 has no excuse. The article goes even further to suggest putting a countdown timer in the event that you have a time limit on your sale. The second point is regarding bandwagoning. I'm tying into the 500 people signing on. So I guess if all my friends and family sign on to HBO because they're getting into Game of Thrones, well, I'm going to avoid watching it, but that's because I'm a contrarian. You get the idea. The third is price anchoring, which by the way, funny how within this we're getting a bunch of bonus definitions. Anyways, price anchoring is giving customers a frame of reference so they know they're getting a good deal, or at least they think they are. Not that they have any reason to doubt it, right? It's one thing to provide a short-term offer. It's another to compare it to other active offers or what the price would be on the regular. The final point is that your email subscribers will be some of your best customers since they know what value to expect typically. Next up is digitally native vertical brand, which I bet is almost everyone here. I really should just say everyone, but I'm a hedger of bets. A DNVB is a brand born and raised on the internet. While many businesses have transitioned where necessary to online, or capitalized on it, integrated into their business. However, many large and successful businesses of today are as such because the internet is baked into their DNA from the beginning. It encapsulates much of what we discuss on the show. But I guess the most key element to the definition is that it's entirely in control of the product itself. It sells. Be it dropshipping or wholesaling. At first, I did think Amazon counts as one of them. And according to medium.com, there are similarities, but DNVBs build their brand based on the passion and reverence they have for their product, usually just the one, or just the one set. Medium.com points to a few key elements such as transparency, authenticity, and premium service. Some of the brands, all of which have been mentioned before, are Bonobos, Warby Parker, Glossier, and Casper. The difference is, of the 17 or so products in my place right now I got from Amazon, I mean, I don't have a Kindle, so I don't think of any of them as Amazon products. But I also don't have a clear connection to the brand that sold them to me through Amazon. Whereas as I type my scripts out and look at the one compressed gloves on my hands, I recall them more vividly. So this next one I was confused by. I could swear that it was patent interrupt, like patent pending, uh, but it's not. It is pattern interrupt. There, there was, I, I searched like pretty hard to try to find somewhere where it would say patent interrupt. Um, so you can do a Google search where you put the word into quotations. So quote, patent interrupt, end quote. And yeah, the, the top three hits on the most powerful information database known to the public were unrelated. They ended up in the search because it was patent comma interrupt. Uh, I did find one instance of it um, related to e-commerce. Uh, and I quote, 
This could be introducing a color or font that is not seen in the brand guidelines because we know it will cause a patent interrupt on social media. So that was probably like the transcriber heard patent when it was when the word was pattern, uh, which is how I got into that mess too. So anyways, a pattern interrupt is an attention getter. Uh, one of the ones that I was taught by my mentor and by my mentor, Ricky, is to use a capital in each and every word in an ad. In this way, the pattern is what we're used to. So anytime something, another word for it would be scroll stopper. Anything that gets you to break from your pre-established pattern would be something along these lines. Another example would be a sales call. You're minding your own business and somebody calls and tries to tell you that your website needs an upgrade. Let's now talk about RLSA, Remarketing Lists for Search Ads, a Google Ads feature that lets you customize your ads and bids based for visitors who have already visited your site. Essentially, you would want to use one set of ads to try and capture people's attention, but you wouldn't want to use the same ads for people who are already aware, are you? RLSA lets you hone content specifically for them. In the same way, a salesperson who recalls a previous customer would want to pick up where things left off. This, by the way, is from support.google.com. The two ways to strategically deploy this is A, to optimize bids based on behavior, like increasing your bid for people who are recent visitors, giving you more time to be on their mind, and B, to use keywords you don't normally bid on in case you need to tweak your strategy to get their interest again. Next, we have a product listing ad. It's a Google ad format that features images of products. According to mobilemoxie.com, products are uploaded to Google by way of an XML feed, which stands for Extensible Markup Language. It's sent to Google Merchant Center. Now, I search things in Google a lot, and I'm sure you do too. But only having learned of this for the first time, I went and typed in tires on Google. Why tires? Because I wanted to throw the algorithm off as much as possible. Looking at it at full page on a desktop, the carousel had six ads, rows three by three. And I'd say it rounded out the page nicely. I clicked on one of the links and it goes to the website. But in order for these to get you to Google Shopping, you'd have to be dissatisfied with all six top hits and want to delve more into the list. Here is Fast Moving Consumer Goods, FMCG, characterized by Investopedia as products that sell quickly at a relatively low cost, also known as consumer packaged goods. They're in high demand, so you don't expect the product to last long on the shelf. To compare it to a slow moving good would be something like a fridge, which lasts a long time and doesn't expire. The article goes into detail to say that there are three kinds of products in general, durable, non-durable, and services. I did think there'd be a word that fits more than non-durable, but fragile, flimsy, delicate, brittle, and decrepit are all not palatable marketing terms, so I digress. Durables have three years shelf life, non-durable less than one. Services are, well, services. FMCG fall into non-durable, since they're consumed right away and don't last long. You can picture plenty of items that go into this category. But here's the full list. Processed foods, prepared meals, beverages, baked goods, fresh slash frozen or dry goods, medicines, cleaning products, cosmetics and toiletries, and office supplies. In regards to e-commerce, the market has largely been dominated by non-consumable goods, durables, and entertainment products. However, as we've seen, the FMCG e-commerce market is growing in demand. And rather quickly too, I might add. And I'll touch on consumer packaged goods for a second. It is a highly competitive market, seeing as how products in this line are always going to be something people need more of. Food, drinks, clothes. Investopedia put tobacco up on the list right next to these. Sure, why not? Let's do CLTV next. 
Customer long-term value. According to blog.hubspot.com, CLTV is a critical metric since it's by design, emphasizing forward planning. It says, and I quote, by measuring the CLTV in relation to the customer acquisition cost, or CAC, sometimes referred to as CAC, but I don't know, I don't really like that. That's just me. Which is what you need to spend in advertising and sales to acquire their business. Companies can figure out how long they need to recoup the investment required to earn a new customer. For instance, the cost of sales and marketing. The two main ways the article recommends improving the CLTV are customer satisfaction and retention, which are accomplished through quality customer service and a product they're not keen to replace with another or stop using altogether. The key takeaway is that you don't need to market to customers already buying from you, so retaining them is how that investment pays off in the long term. They also provide a five-step calculator to figure out what the value is, and they use Starbucks as an example, so thankfully I, or we, can understand it. Step one, calculate average purchase value. So if a customer spends five bucks on a cup of coffee, but they come into the shop three times a week, they then compare that to four other customers and how much they spend per week. Add that average together and then divide that by the number of customers. Step two is to calculate the APFR, average purchase frequency rate. This is specifically regarding the amount of visits. So across five people, the average might be 4.2 visits. Step three is calculate the average customer's value. Examine all five customers one by one, multiply average purchase value by purchase frequency rate. Average those five calculations together to get the customer value. Number four, calculate the customer's lifetime span, which the article presumes from their own source, KISS metrics, that it'd be 20 years. Final step, multiply ACV by 52, because 52 weeks are in a year, more or less, then multiply by customer lifespan value, which is 20 years. The amount they came back with was $25,000 over 20 years per person. And that is why I'm going to start getting my coffees at AW. An important term, and one that you only get one of per company, is an IPO, Initial Public Offering. According to MVP of the Day, Investopedia, an IPO is when a company offers shares of a private corporation to the public in a new stock issuance. This is where the company seeks to raise funding for their business through public investors. Often, businesses will already have funding from private investors, and this is where those private investors are going to want to see some returns on their investments. Private investors are people more closely tied to the well-being of the company, families, the creators, angel investors, and venture capitalists. The advantages are, of course, access to more money. Easier to convince more potential investors, increased transparency, which improves their ability to secure credit. Secondary offerings are on the table now. They can use it as a bargaining tool to secure highly skilled employees and makes a company more prestigious in the eyes of the public. The downsides are that an IPO is a whole new financial cost and a taxing one at that. There's legal, accounting, and marketing costs. They have to disclose financial information, which may reveal business techniques others can steal. There's also a chance of failure. New shareholders can vote, and therefore the private investors have less say in the company. And risks are harder to take. And you can see this in many publicly traded companies. Taking risks becomes anathema to the company. Now, let's do TAC, Traffic Acquisition Cost. This is a monetary investment required to get people to potentially become customers. It's applied specifically, according to SeekingAlpha.com, companies like Yahoo, Baidu, Google, and Facebook, all of whom rely quite heavily on advertising. The article defines it like this. TEC is a percentage of those advertising revenues paid to third parties that direct surfers to their websites and advertisements. 
For instance, the article supposes that the web page it's on has a Google ad or three on there. So if someone clicks on the ad, Google gives the website a cut. Last today is white label product. In the words of the now exalted Investopedia, these are products manufactured by a third party, but labeled by the brand itself. Grocery stores are notorious for this. Grotorious? I wanted to try it out. You can tell what they are when you see a brand exclusive to the store, like great value or good product, yes, happy, fun time. Depends on where you shop. In e-commerce, there's an article by Deliver.com, and that's two R's, which encourages creatives and makers to consider making a product with a blank label and letting a brand market the product on their behalf. Marketing, as I'm learning the hard way, is a skill some have infinite knack for. Others don't. But not everyone can make a great belt, or pouch, or perfume. One of the most interesting aspects, putting myself in the position of someone making a product, is seeing other companies take my idea and tell a story with it. Ecom Dash provides some helpful points when looking for a manufacturer. Request a sample if you're going to verify quality. Verify how long it took to deliver, as well as condition on arrival. Ask for total manufacturing costs and how they handle defects and damaged goods. White label is more involved than a routine dropshipping operation. Drop operation? Wanted to try that out too. With dropshipping, the standard kind we talk about a lot with guests and in general, you're just finding products that are currently in a winning position, which leads to making assumptions about it. If it's reviewing all right, demand is rising, it's fair to assume the product isn't a disaster waiting to happen. However, the assumption is that you aren't looking to brand it with specific messaging or packaging. With a white label operation, you're more involved in the product, adding your own brand and message to it. You can also white label a product and see how it performs in the market. And then if you want to invest in an upgraded version of the product, you have some brand foundation. So it's an important and effective strategy. All right, 20 more down plus bonuses aplenty. Hope you got a few new ones today in your repertoire. Like I said, plenty more where that came from. As always, let's get your feedback. Send it to podcast at debutify.com. See you next time. Thanks for listening. You might have found this show on many number of platforms. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or right here on Debutify. Whatever the case, if you enjoy this content and want to help us thrive, please take a few moments to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you think is best. We also want to hear from you, so whether you think you'd be a good guest or want to weigh in on anything related to our show, you can email podcast at debutify.com or connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Finally, this podcast is created by the passionate team at Debutify. If you're ready to take the plunge into e-commerce or are looking to up your game, head over to debutify.com and see how it can change your life and the lives of many through what you do next.